All right. Should we get going? Yeah, we are going. going. Welcome to Suggested Donation. I'm Edward Minoff. And I'm Tony Cernai. And today, actually, I'm honored to be in a room. No, I'm honored. I'm honored I'm to honored. be in a room I'm with honored. two amazing landscape painters. Oh. To my right, I have Edward Minoff, who's a great landscape painter, and somebody I admire a lot, which is uh, Joseph McGurl, is here from 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 Massachusetts. Yeah, all the way from Massachusetts. Hi, guys. Yeah. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for inviting me on. Well, yeah. thanks so much for, for joining us. We, You know, when we conceived of the podcast, your name was at the top of the list of people we really wanted to speak with. So we're glad that we're finally well, making thanks. it happen. Yeah, I've, I've enjoyed listening to them, so it's uh, fun to be on. You've listened to a couple of them, huh? Uh-huh. And it didn't scare you off? Um, no. <laughs> it's only words. We'll, we'll do our best during this interview to scare you off. Exactly. Jay Braun. 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 And Jay Braun. Hello, guys. <laughs> so, Joseph, um, I mentioned that you were up from the Northeast, from Massachusetts. And um, is, is it fair to say that you consider yourself um, a landscape artist? Or are you just, you know, when some, some people, they, when you put a title on them, they're like, oh, well, I'm not that. I'm just an artist. But you're, you, you do landscapes so beautifully, and it seems that you put so much effort and time into them that it just, when I think of landscapes, you're one of the, the names that, you know, outside of the Hudson River School of the traditional landscape. Except painting. for Church and Gifford. And Gifford and all those great <laughs> But the idea of like, you know, modern landscape painters, yours is one of the names that pops up. So do you consider yourself a, a landscape painter? Yes, and I don't, I don't mind labels as long as they're appropriate. It makes it a lot easier to discuss things if you can put a label on someone. For instance, if you were going to talk about the Impressionist, how do you call them Impressionist without saying the Impressionist? You know, those guys that dab paint that lived in <laughs> the 1860s. Black. <laughs> and, you know, so, yeah, la- you know, labels are fine as long as they're accurate. And, you know, you don't want to have to paint your label, too. So mm. if... If I felt like doing still lifes of portraits or something like that, I would, I would do them. Years ago, I did um, a lot of figurative work and some still life painting. But at a certain point, I realized that I got such an emotional response from landscapes that I just didn't get that same feedback from the, the portraits and the still lifes and such. So I um, said, life's just too short not to spend all my time with something I'm enthralled with. So so when you say emotional response, or do you mean personal or from uh, outside? External. external. Uh, both. You know, the external, mm. what I'm looking at and experiences, you know, it affects me internally, and then I sort of give it back to the landscape. Uh-huh. It's, when I'm painting a landscape, if I'm painting a tree, eventually the tree and I sort of almost become one. It sounds kind of wing tiny, but... It's true, and I can sort of feel the weight of the branches yeah. and the shape and the you know the posture of the tree, and I try to really identify with the objects that I'm painting on a really deep and profound level. It's not just a tree for me; it's a it's a, a living sort of being. But even if it's, if it's a rock, I can feel like I can feel the weight of that rock, and um, so I really try to identify with the subject that I'm painting on on a quite deep level. So, Sort of like a portrait painter would with the subject. A really good portrait painter kind of gets yeah. into the psyche of his sitter yeah. and understands him much more profoundly than someone just sort of walking by and glancing at him. Do you feel like you're, I mean, you, you did have academic training with figure painting. Do you feel like that factors in, that that adds something, some different facet to your landscape paintings? Do you feel like you approach landscape maybe a little bit differently? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I went to college at uh, Mass College of Art, and they were really into sort of abstract painting and such. So <laughs> when I graduated, I realized I, I never really had a strong drawing class, and I really didn't know where to go for one. And because we were so out of the loop in art school, we didn't know that like less than a mile away from my college was the Guild of Boston Artists, and upstairs from that was, um, at that time, Gamel, Ives Gamel was still alive, but... Mm. There was also Bob Cormier and Robert Douglas Hunter and, you know, these terrific um, draftsmen and figure painters and still life painters. So eventually I found out about them and I studied with uh, Bob Cormier for two years, figure drawing, sight size, just charcoal. And it was absolutely transformative. It was like, wow, this is what drawing is all about. <laughs> and, he, you know, he, the care that he gave to his artwork, like if your paint if your uh, paper became too smudgy from too many erasers, he'd tell you to start over. And mm -hmm. in art school, it was, you know, they really the didn't even The smudgier, the better. Yeah. yeah. It's like, oh, I love the struggle. Right. There's not enough smudgies. Yeah. <laughs> Did you find art school was a pretty frustrating experience? Yeah, but it was more frustrating when I got out and realized what I didn't learn than right. when I was there because, you know, I was out of high school. I didn't, what did I know? You know? Right. I well, knew you... that what they were doing wasn't what I was interested in. Right. And I remember I was doing a portrait one time and, you know, it wasn't coming out very well. And I was kind of frustrated. And the teacher came over and said, well, it looks kind of odd, but I like that. <laughs> right. And that was like, and I was like, well, you get paid for that critique. <laughs> I know. Um, so it was somewhat frustrating. But your uh, father was an artist. Yeah, but he wasn't a fine artist. He did murals and um, a lot of decorative painting. So mm -hmm. he wasn't in like sort of the fine art easel gallery okay. type of, of world. He was, you know, he was working with flat painters in churches. And he would be doing the gilding and painting the statues. And maybe he'd do a mural on the ceiling or something. Mm -hmm. But, but that, he wasn't dealing with galleries. But that would such. take a lot of skill. Yeah. So yeah. I'm assuming he was probably influencing you in that idea of, well, it's a, it's a very skill-based thing in addition to all the emotional and... The, well, also getting your hands that. dirty. Yeah, and right. like working paint. with your hands. Yeah, and, and ev just about everything I learned up until I went to, uh, to study with Bob Cormer, I learned with my dad. And he didn't have real... He went to Mass College of Art, too. <laughs> <laughs> it was slightly better when he went in the um, late 40s. Did he have any but, connection to the Boston School? No, right. no. When he uh, got out of college, he uh, went to work for a church decorating company, and that's mm -hmm. where he was, um, you know, doing the gilding and the stencils and marbleizing and all that kind of stuff. But you know, he, the wonderful thing about working with him was that he was a really creative guy and was never really hampered by you know someone. By the task in front of him so he learned all these things on his own too like marbleizing and wood graining mm. and gold leafing and stenciling and such so it gave me a really good appreciation for what paint can do and how you can manipulate it rather than just putting it on and leaving it there you know a lot of my paintings now in particular i use a lot of glazes and textures and yeah. sanding and all kinds of tools and such a lot of the tools that he used to use uh, seagull feathers you use um, seagull really? feathers? Oh, yeah. Really? How great that, for, wait, how does that work? Well, in, in uh, marbleizing, you use the seagull feather to put the grain in the marble. So and, marbleizing, you mean like trompoy painting of marble? So, right. You, you have a piece of wood, and you want to paint it to look like marble. Right, so you yeah. paint it to look like marble. But one of the tricky parts is getting to the veins to have this beautiful like sort of swirling, soft. organic shape. Yeah, And if you use a seagull feather and you dip it in some paint and sort of draw with it and twist it and turn it as you pull it along, and sometimes you push it against the grain of the uh, feathers too, oh. it makes these beautiful patterns that look a lot like marble. 
<laughs> and so actually one of the funny totally things is he got a lot of jobs repairing damaged, uh, damaged marble floors and, and things because you'd have a building like a church you'd have a marble floor and they had to get to the piping below it or something or someone dropped something so you had this big damaged <laughs> piece of marble and they could never get marble that would match. It would cost a fortune to find it and have it installed. So they'd fill it with cement, and he would come along and paint it. Paint and the you cement. Couldn't find, you couldn't find where the, the patch Called began. Giuseppe. Giuseppe will <laughs> yeah. get you the marble. So, <laughs> what are you talking about? Are you guys out with nets, like catching seagulls and plucking the feathers? <laughs> <laughs> oh, enough of them floated up on the beach. That, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. But anyway, he gave me a great... Um, respect and understanding for what you can do with paint and mm -hmm. don't just put it there start to ma manipulate it and also not being sort of hamstrung with you know these are the brushes and that's my only tool right is that do you I, i've been watching your paintings and admiring them for a long time and i feel like i've seen a lot of development in terms i mean just in the past decade uh in terms of you using texture and and is that are you kind of continuing and have you had some revelation in terms of discovering new tools and new ways to use the paint to express different effects? Yes, I, I think that, you know, every artist, or most artists, they should be always evolving and trying new things. And when I first started Not out... Tony, my, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I go one way and stuck put in the, the blinders <laughs> on and don't even talk to me. I'm going Straight that Straight ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Shut up. I'm doing it again. Exactly. <laughs> over and over and over. Um, but when I first started out, my biggest task was just trying to make it look right, which meant making yeah. it look real enough that it's, it's believable. And then just having it have that natural look to it. And then eventually I was able to do that. And at a certain point, you say, okay, now I can paint exactly what I see just the way I want it. And then you say, what else can I do? And so I've been trying to incorporate different layers of reality in my paintings. For instance, lately I've been painting a lot of texture in the landforms and then have a really flat and smooth sky. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking that because the sky in, say, a rocky beach, there's one that I did of a rock. And... Um, Singularity? It has a lot of singularity, yeah. yeah. I've actually carried painting. a little bit further belong, beyond that, but that was kind of one of the ones that first got me uh, working this way. Is that I'm thinking that when I look, look at the sky, it's very ethereal. And, mm -hmm. you know, sky's fascinating because there's really no color to the sky. It's all um, the colors provided by the photons that come through, and they're filtered by dust and gas right. and such. Yeah. So you're painting something that has absolutely no color. Yeah. And for us, at our you know, level of um, interaction with it, we can't feel it. It's this intangible, you know, sort of ethereal thing. Yeah. So, but it's something that we all know. It's like every single right. per person on this planet knows that knows the sky. But, but yeah, but the sky is blue, but so it, you make it blue. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a familiar thing to every living being on this planet. Right. But yet, it's like not exactly what you think it is. No, it's yeah. it's nothing really. When you think about it, <laughs> I'm painting nothing. <laughs> but then you you have a rock that has you know this massive weight to it and texture and solidity, and I'm thinking that why am I painting them the same way? Maybe right. the rock should be painted an entirely different way from the sky, since you know at our level of um, of uh, sensory perception they're so different yeah so i've been painting the skies very smooth and using glazes and trying to get that ethereal sort of it's not really there look to it 
And then the rocks are much more textural and painted with impasto. And I'll use glazes on the rocks too and then sand them and really abrade the surface and uh, make it quite um, unique and different from, from the surface of the, like where the sky is. Mm -hmm. Weighty, yeah. And it just seems right to me that elements with such different features would be painted differently, not only in the way they look, but the actual tactile surface of the paint. Are there inspirations, like older artists that you look to for that kind of texture? I mean, just as you're describing that, there's a, a painting that you must be familiar with that's in the Boston Museum of Fine Arts by uh, Antonio Mancini of uh, St. John the Baptist, and the texture yeah. is just, it jumps off the wall. It's incredible. Yeah. I'm wondering if there are artists, you know, other artists maybe that you're looking to that are inspiring this kind of search for more kind of a tactile feel to certain elements. Well, I mean, one of them, that he paints very smoothly, but he has this amazing sense of texture and, and form is you know, Andrew Wyeth with his oh, stone yeah. walls. and Well, that's know, also with Singularity songs. something. That he painted, there was a rock that's like covered in like yeah. seagull crap, and it's, but it's such... <laughs> I have no idea what that was. Um, <laughs> you just heard something weird. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead, Ted. Sorry, and it, it reminds me. Siri is always Wyatt trying to get in. in yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have this thing with Siri from iPhone always trying to get in on our conversation. <laughs> She's jealous of the podcast. Just for the listeners who don't know, you said you used a technique. Was it a Baggio? What was the technique you used on the rock? Oh, impasto. Impasto. So what was that? What is that? It's painting very thickly okay. and, and directly as opposed to painting thinly and then maybe putting glazes on top of it and such and like creating tech paint texture yeah. to with the paint itself but you were talking about andrew wyeth's painting yeah yeah well, he's got one of a rock yeah that was always inspiring to me yeah. yeah but i love his barns like his stone barns or cement um just the barn walls the texture is just beautiful but he'll do it with watercolor and you swear <laughs> you can run your hand across that and feel and the texture like all bumpy and stuff. yeah but it's you know a nice smooth watercolor who are some of your influences as, as far as artists that you were looking to that were kind of jazzing you up yeah. you know especially back back in the day and now if you it's funny because I, I talk to some artists and they're like i don't look at a lot right now because i don't want to be influenced but when you go back, everybody was like checking out a bunch of stuff. Is there somebody or a movement in particular that was really, well, when really influential? I, when I was a kid, I used to go to art classes at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. And to get to the classes, I'd walk past these um, paintings in the Carroll Collection, which were mostly Hudson River School paintings. Mm. And I was just in awe of them. They looked so real. And, you know, when you're a small kid, that's the, the first thing that catches you is that it looks real. Because when you're drawing, you're trying to make everything look real. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's the task of an artist. And so they formed a really strong impression on me early on. And then I remember when I was in, just out of college, I think, I was with a friend of mine, Frank Strazula, who I've known since I've been in second grade, and he's an artist. And we went to the Worcester Art Museum, and we saw Innes's Alban Hills. Mm. And I thought it was just so beautiful. And I remember saying to him, I can't believe that if you could paint like that, no one would buy your paintings. <laughs> this is when this is <laughs> this is probably about 1979 or 1980 when like realism and revolution and that whole movement was sort yeah, of coming yeah. about and it's old fashioned. Yeah. <laughs> so that that had a really big influence on me, and it, it, that was about the t uh, well. Shortly after that, I was uh, went to study with Bob Cormier, 
And so, um, a lot was, of the, it, was that school that you went to? Was that pretty much an extension of the Boston, the Boston school, where they all yeah, was of Gamel, yes. right? There, there so were students was, of Gamel. Okay, so and, Gamel was. I mean, he goes back to Paxton and Tarrell right. and Bunker and all those guys. Right. who are all amazing artists. I mean, talk about an American movement. I mean, they were some of the first real. Amer- it's like the Hudson River School in Boston were probably. Am I wrong to say that they were like the first American art movement? Definitely, like I think the Hudson River much. School was. Yeah, yeah, the Hudson River was probably the first like yeah, sort of yeah. native-born art movement. Yeah. Before that, you know, um, most of the artists had come over from England. From England, I, I know. I know all those Boston guys studied in France. Um, a lot of them studying in France, right. but, it, but a lot of the Hudson River School guys studied in Germany. Germany, right? yeah. Dusseldorf. Yeah. Did, were they studying landscape, or were they also doing figure? I. Don't know to tell you the truth. It's funny. I've, I was just thinking about that on the way over. I guess I, probably landscape, but maybe I, some academic figure type drawing. But I too. wonder, because, I mean, like with Church, the way that he lights a, a landscape is, and then the way he thinks about light, it seems like that would be taught in a studio, you know, maybe with a figure or something. The way he models uh rocks it just reminds me of of my own training as as a figure painter mm-hmm. um and i think you know you mentioned your training as a figure painter it seems like that sort of thing i mean i don't know much about the dusseldorf school but it seems like it would make sense that yeah. they were doing that I church didn't uh, he didn't study in dusseldorf he studied with cole oh yeah and thomas cole you oh. know he did do some figurative work and you know he probably had a training as a you know in figurative work right. also Durand which may have um, carried over into what church was doing i don't know if i've ever seen a figure painting by church no but the, i think the sensibility is there yeah and one of the interesting things about the the, the um, boston school and their drawing method is they use that site size method yeah. which is if any of you out there don't know it's you you look at your subject and you draw it the exact same size that you see it so you don't make it larger, you don't make it smaller than what you see, and you generally put your panel right next to the subject so you can flick your eye back and forth and compare the two. It's direct comparison. Yeah, and that was a really big influence on me also because it took a few years, maybe you know, 10 years later, I thought, why don't I try doing site-sized landscapes? And that's how I do my plein air landscapes now is they're all site-sized. So I kind of start them off as I would if I was uh, painting a figure, and I get sort of the basic drawing in and try to get all my shapes and proportions the exact same size. And then I can um, finish the landscape without really having to do the site size because I get everything sort of locked in. So are, are you measuring a lot when you're site sizing, you know, on for landscapes? So are you using your brush or are you using a, a, a some sort of a, a string or something like you, that to get those proportions? Usually just my eye. Just uh, eye. When I started with the figure drawing in Bob, Bob Cormier, we would measure everything yeah. mm-hmm. because our eye was so bad. Mm-hmm. And by the end, our eye was actually pretty good. And yes. we wouldn't have to measure. You just sort of use your eye to calculate yeah. you know, how long this looks and how fat that looks and such. But one of the things about sight size landscape painting, and I guess it's probably true with figure painting too, is that it, in a way, it's dangerous because it's so accurate that you can lose the emotional response that you get from the scene. A lot of times I'll draw it out, and I'll look and say, it just looks bland, but that's not the way it looks when I look at it, and that's mm. not what I, I feel. And that's because, for me in particular, the landscape is an emotional as well as a visual experience. 
And if I'm looking at a mountain, I'm feeling its mass and its shape and just this huge, you know, presence. And then if I, but if I just look at what I'm seeing, it doesn't always carry that same weight. So a lot of times you have to divert from the sight size and paint what you feel rather than just what you see, because sight size can make sort of a very sterile, mm-hmm. not very emotional um, rendition of what you're looking at. Sometimes, sometimes it's fine and everything right. works fine. But um, it is, you do have to be aware that you're only recording what you see rather than what you feel. Right. And, you know, for me, where I get such a strong response from the landscape, if I don't paint what I'm, see- what I'm feeling as well as what I'm seeing, in a way, it's not giving the viewer a whole impression of the, of the thing that I'm trying to do. So take, like, liberties with the scale of something just to make it feel the way it feels, even yeah. though it's registering in sight size as being a little bit smaller or less. Right, yeah. but they're, they're calculated. You know, uh, right. you, uh, after a certain point, you get so loosey-goosey that nothing sort of lines up. <laughs> and it's like, Ugh. So when I change things, I know what I'm doing. I've, it's a, right. know, a calcul- I'm changing this to that because that looks better. There's a painting by um, Bierstadt, uh, the Rocky Mountains. It's in the Metropolitan Museum. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Landers Peak. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just an amazing painting. And I was it's reading like vertigo a, sets. Yeah. When you're standing it is. If you're right. close Absolutely. to it, you get a little dizzy. And there was I read a reviewer uh, talking about it one time, saying, "Well, it's a ridiculous painting because this is the Rocky Mountains. If those mountains were really that high, they'd be eighty thousand feet tall." That's what they feel like. (laughs) Exactly. And that's what it felt like. That's what he was painting. He was painting what he felt, not what he saw. Right. And that's the whole thing about what I think makes good painting, what makes a painting good as opposed to great, is a good painting, everything's sort of accurate. And yeah, Mm -hmm. that's good. But a great painting is that it's emotionally accurate Mm -hmm. rather than just visually accurate. Right. He's conveying a feeling rather than conveying an optical effect. Right, right. And so when I uh, teach workshops, I always tell the students that, you know, you have to be careful that, you know, the sight size is so accurate, it can sometimes overpower the emotional response. So, you know, if feel free to deviate from it in certain aspects. But it's a great foundation, sort of a good skeleton to start with. And then you put, you know, the flesh on the thing and you decide to make the mountain a little bit fatter. How do you know how do you know when somebody is deviating or they're just not doing oh. it right? <laughs> Their drawing has been off. You <laughs> mean like a student that yeah. oh because they can't recognize that their drawing is off. Ah. It just sort of happens and it's like you know, if you ask them, did you notice that hill is a lot taller? And they say, oops. Yeah. They say, it is? <laughs> <laughs> so is sight, just quickly again for listeners who don't know, sight size means painting, that you're painting as big as you're seeing it? Is that the idea? So yes. if you're painting a mountain, you probably have a very big piece of canvas. Um, you have a very big canvas. It depends well, or you stand on, really close to the canvas. Yeah. Oh. It's, it's, it depends it's, on where you are in relationship to your surface. Yeah. It could be like a forced perspective thing where, yeah, if the canvas, if you have a figure and you put the canvas closer to the figure, the painting is going to be bigger. Right. If it's further away, you just, you paint it or draw it the size you see, it might be a, a smaller figure. And it also depends on where you are to the canvas. So there's two factors. I got to uh, paint with you in Italy uh, several years ago. Mark yeah, D'Alessio invited fun. us out. That yeah. was amazing. And it was, for me incredible to watch you paint it's like a master class right there you three in one uh, spot well, wow for, for me it was i i got i mean one of the things that struck me about your painting plein airs that blew me away was just how decisive you are you know from the start and 
I mean, I was just barely setting up my painting and you're finished with one that's like a hundred times better than what I was doing. But, <laughs> um, but it, it struck me that you, you, there was so much kind of thinking and decisiveness that went in before the paint went down. So you were deciding, you know, the light is hitting this terracotta roof and the sky, you know, I'm looking with the sun behind me. The sky is this deep, deep blue. And the thing that I'm, I'm going to make the sky a little bit darker and so that I can highlight the brightness of the sun hitting that terracotta roof and then, you know, building up the texture on the roof to try and I, just that decisiveness uh, really blew me away and was, I mean, has made me think a lot more as I'm just starting a painting about, you know, what's the effect I'm looking at? How do I express that? And what do I want to highlight? What do I want to push back? And um, that is that just experience or have you been, I mean, I, I know you also study the science of light and. Um, yeah, it's a lot of bad paintings behind that. <laughs> um, I have stacks and stacks of like old paintings, plein air paintings I had done, and gosh, they're just so bad. But I'm hoping that that means there's hope for me. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I spend a lot of time sort of looking at what I'm about to paint because so many times I've gotten halfway through a painting and I realized this is going nowhere. It was a bad idea and such. So I'll, I'll spend a lot of time looking at it. And then I'll also think, well, how can I express what I'm seeing and feeling a little bit, you know, more strongly? And one of the time, one of the ways is to sometimes enhance what you see and mm -hmm. subdue other aspects of what you see, just sort of manipulating the scene a little bit to have it reflect the feedback that you're getting from the scene. Right. Um, so I don't mind, you know, as I was talking about sight size. I don't mind enhancing things and subduing other things to get things to be somewhat decisive. Right. Um, sometimes you can, there's so much information out there. Sometimes in the landscape, you can get just muddled with information. Yeah. And a lot of, one of the ways to sort of overcome that is to sort of force certain aspects of the painting and then minimize other aspects of the painting. So you have a really strong sense of you know, shape and composition. And uh, one of the things I always tell my students is that Big shapes are, are strong and small shapes are weak. So try to have some really big shapes in your painting. You can have sort of subcategories, but when you squint at it, you want to have some really big, powerful shapes. Like one main event? Kind yeah. Of. So is, are, you, you, are you suggesting that even when they're starting to scout out a possible painting? Meaning even before they start painting, you're like, well, that's not as interesting looking as that is because there's bigger shapes in that one. Or yeah. a bigger shape. Yeah, but then I contradict myself all the time, too. Because <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to our world. <laughs> and they say a foolish consistency is a hobgoblin of small minds. <laughs> I think that was Emerson. But anyway. Um, That's good. Jay <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sometimes I'll see something and it, compositionally it stinks, but the information is just so beautiful and yeah, fascinating right. that I'm painting and I'm saying, I know this is a stinky painting, but I love the way the light is hitting this surface right. yeah. and uh, the color that it's making or the topography is just so fascinating and unique or something like that. So a lot of times I'll do these plein air paintings that, that you know, the compositions just aren't good. There was um, a couple of years ago, I spent a couple of weeks on Nantucket in my boat just in the harbor 
and half the paintings are just lots of sky and lots of water with a tiny strip somewhere <laughs> and of land. Uh, not a strip. <laughs> hey, <laughs> those paintings are not showing anyone. Yeah, those are just for us. Private viewing only. What you want for that painting? But those, those paintings I love never, the strip. Even, even if you like them, they never see the light of day because they're just not compositionally what you're going for. Right, they're just not interesting paintings. But to me, they are, and the information was good, and I love the gradation of the sky and the sparseness and the simplicity so they're useful for studio paintings we're going to get we're like I would love to see those paintings I know yeah, some, yeah, some, yeah, somebody's going to leave a comment like, <laughs> could I see but, those uh, I, I just want to see, see I always have this dilemma where I you know I'm out painting plein air and you know the, I paint in my studio based on the plein airs that I do and so sometimes I, I guess the dilemma that I have is whether to paint what I'm seeing out there and make the decisions about what to suppress and what to enhance when I'm back in the studio or to take liberties out there because, you know, once I get back to the studio with the study, I mean, what a, one thing that I've found is sometimes I think this painting is, is garbage. I'm never going to, you know, it's, but I'll just keep going and I'll try and be accurate and just try and essentially bring home information that might factor into some other painting somewhere down the road. And often I find that that paint, those are the paintings that like I'm find most useful, and that I actually, you know, I get it home. I think I'll never paint from this, and then of course, like two months later, I'm painting directly from that, you know, like transferring the drawing, and uh, and so uh, the dilemma that I've, I've confronted a lot is whether to take liberties when I'm out there versus whether to just bring back almost like raw data to my studio, just collect as much information as I can and bring it back as like unfiltered as possible and then be able to manipulate it with paintings at home. Hmm. Right. Do you find that something like a, something that you could confront too or? Yes, all the time. It's, <laughs> and I, I do the same thing, you know, I'll have this painting as I was saying, is going nowhere, but the information is so good. Yeah. And then I'll make change, but I don't like to change too much in the field. I'll only make changes really if they're just obvious changes that are, right. you know, what I'm painting is not going to work and it's not going to change that response from the painting too much if I move this tree over here or right. eliminate the road or add a road or something like that. Um, you know, I may see a road off to the side and I think, boy, that's a really nice looking road. If I brought this over right. a little bit, I could have a, a much better <laughs> painting. So I'll do that. But where I don't use photographs and you don't use right. photos either, yeah. Ted, we have to make sure that we get all the information we need in the field yeah. and we're able to do something with it back in the studio. And one of the great things about not using photos is it really makes us dig in deep and fight for that information because if we, you know it'd be so easy well i'll take a picture and i can get all the details from the photo right but where we don't do that we have to really observe and really somewhat dissect the landscape yeah and figure out not how only how it looks and feels but how it all works and how it fits together sort of in a mechanical way right and so you're when, when you get back to the studio you have a much deeper and more profound impression of what you were looking at in painting because you spent all this time analyzing it down to the last detail and yeah. figuring, you know, how does that, you know, feature interact with all the other features around it that you're looking at? Right. Because optically, like, if you don't have a photograph to refer back to, you don't have anything optically to look at except for your painting. And right. your painting, you know, if you're painting outside, conditions change so quickly you're not going to get exactly what's happening at any particular moment so yeah you're watching it over time and trying to understand it I find just to 
like if you understand the process behind what's happening, you can you can recreate that in the studio on a canvas. And that to me is the interesting part of of painting studio landscapes is kind of reconstructing things and yeah and making it up when i was a kid you know i made up all my drawings yeah (laughs) my friend frank and i would be drawing army men and we'd be in the field i mean we'd be in the field with those army men (laughs) (laughs) we'd make in the sound effect (laughs) and frank would be growling with his tank and i'd say frank you're drawing a a tiger tank but that's more like a panzer tank But you know we were we yeah, were reality of this thing. Come on, I'm just I'm just I'm I'm not feeling it. I'm out of yeah. it. Surrender. Yeah. Right. yeah. No, but it was it was a real experience. We were there in that battlefield that we were drawing, and I still feel that now when I'm painting. As I was saying earlier, when I paint a tree, I really feel that tree. And the wonderful thing was just making up these worlds that we were living in. And right now, probably three quarters of the paintings that I do are either completely or mostly made up. Right. But they're sort of informed by all these sketches I've been doing over the years. And sometimes I'll have a sketch, and I like the setting, for instance, at the Salma Gundy show right now. There's a, a Twilight painting I did, and I've never painted that scene at Twilight. Right, we were just and talking about that. Just that scene doesn't exist, but I painted the cliffs along the Palisades you know, often enough and the New York shoreline on the other side that I can make it up. And it's believable, but the whole thing was you know, imaginary. And that's what's really fun. You know, sometimes you can get so into just sort of transcribing what you see that you lose that creative and imaginative. Right. An emotional um, aspect of your artwork. Is that sky something that you've painted a plein air of, you know, somewhere else, or is it no, completely made up? That was I completely made that one up, but oh. I had this idea of having sort of the swirling S composition with the shore sort of hooking around from the left to the right and the sky hooking the other way from the right to the left. So it sort of weaves you through the painting. Right. You were mentioning about being connected with uh, your artwork, and I know... Um, you know, when I look at your work, I do see, I mean, I see a lot of, um, you know, kind of rolling hills and everything, but I see a lot of water in your paintings. Mm-hmm. And uh, I read that you were a, a boat captain. I mean, you were a, a yacht, you you captain, captained yachts. A modern yeah. when, yacht before, with a big engine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a contiki. <laughs> but is it something like that because you knew what it was like to be, you know, in, in the water, you grew up around the water that you were like, you were so connected to it that you felt that you feel more in tune with painting the water. Yeah. I think you you paint sort of who you are and what you are and just sort of comes out naturally. And I naturally gravitate towards water. I've been doing a lot of Western paintings lately though, that Mm -hmm. I really am finding the Western landscape really fascinating. Are you, are you taking like a few trips of, a year or something out yeah, west? Yeah, at least two trips a year out west. How do you research where you're going to go and what you want to see? Uh, a lot of times it's sort of put upon me <laughs> for different reasons. Um, what does that mean? Well, this group, the Planner Painters of America, I'm in. Um, last year we had a painting event in um, Southern California in the um, Escondido area. Yeah. So I was painting the um, hills and stuff, uh, such inland from San Diego. Yeah, and then we had another painting event in uh, Wyoming. Uh, Wyoming is amazing. Month, and we painted there. For it a, seems a week. like it seems like there's a lot of um, fracking. Well, well yeah, <laughs> but the idea of like there, there's been a huge resurgence in plein air painting, and you know, in the last mm-hmm. I don't know 
Well, and studio and studio, painting, I think. but the yeah. idea that like there's plain air, there's magazines that are de- dedicated to just plain right. air painting and everything. So you start looking around, and there's so much amazing, you know, spots to go out and do plain air paintings. Where I would almost be like, how are you? It's a, it's like too much, like you know, because you can go down the street and find like this beautiful little scene in your neighborhood, but then you can go out west and paint the mountains or paint completely different shoreline. It's like how do you how do you just pick and choose what you want to paint? Um, yeah, like every place can be fascinating. Yeah. You know, at sunset, twilight or something. Yeah. You know, anything looks beautiful yeah. at twilight. <laughs> a scene that you've seen a <laughs> million times. Even the Guanus Canal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We were just talking, Ted was just saying he was painting the Guanus Canal yes, today or <laughs> Super yesterday. Super fun sight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah, I, like the, I love the West because it has this wonderful sense of space and I think that people that love the ocean also love the West because of the spaciousness the of it. Of it yeah. And I'm not really into like woodlands and trees and sort of claustrophobic interior type of places. Shishkin or anything yeah. like that. <laughs> <laughs> there's like Russian painters who yeah. painted those amazing trees. Or Durand, he did a lot of those. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, Whitridge and that oh, beautiful yeah. uh, one with the canoe. Um, but uh, I love space and distance and light and atmosphere and such and you get that in the ocean and you also get that out west so um i think there's kind of a connection between the western landscape and the in the ocean also in, you know particularly in wyoming you have these you know beautiful like endless prairies that just yeah. go on forever with yeah. undulating hills and the similarity between that and the ocean i think is really quite uh, quite striking yeah. yeah is that also they're kind of tied together with I mean, physics, uh, the physics of light have such a profound effect on both. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Um, you know, I'm really interested in physics. I've done a lot of amateur type study of it. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? But, you, you're reading up a lot on science and physics. Yeah, I've, I've because, read, I've, I know that about you. Yeah. But I know that I've heard that you read a lot on science and physics and everything. Yeah, because that's the subject. That's what I'm painting. I'm right. painting this, you know, this universe that we live in, this little speck of it but it's just as valid as any other spot in the universe and so um painting it and contemplating it obviously led me to say well what is this i'm painting what is this reality that i'm trying to interpret and then you get deeper and deeper and next thing you know you're <laughs> trying to understand quantum physics right. which obviously no one understands <laughs> but you have these wonderful theories like just the other day i was reading that there i also believe that there's a spiritual component to the element I mean, to the environment and to, you know, light and, you know, the natural world. And the other day I was reading that there are some physicists that one of they are now theorizing that maybe our consciousness when we die lives on in the quantum realm. Yeah. So it's, you know, there again, it sort of ties in science and spirituality. Yeah. And, um, you know, maybe our consciousness, it's a, it's an actual physical thing. Like it's energy. It's just energy. It's, yeah, that's, but it's a real thing. It's, it's a not real... a you know, uh, this sort of elusive thing, that it's a tangible thing. So anyway, it's it's really a fascinating subject, um, physics, and um, it ties right into the art that I'm, that I'm painting. So it, um, you know, it's one of these things that I, I think I'll always sort of enjoy exploring and learning about. And there's so much to learn in physics that it's like, oh, yeah, it goes on and on. I read something, I feel like I understand it, and 10 minutes later, I don't understand it. I know. It's, well, well, it's so far from our realm of experience. I mean, yeah, we, don't yeah. ex- we can't experience 
any of just about you know any of the Einstein's theories, we can't experience them. And right. you read it and you say, okay, that sort of makes sense. Right. It's kind <laughs> but, of logical, yeah. but I why don't... can't I catch that light beam? <laughs> <laughs> but what's great about the internet is when I do that because I actually do a lot of that myself. You get this thought, and then you get on the computer, and then you go down the rabbit hole of all of a sudden an hour goes by, and I'm watching and like <laughs> reading talks. up. Yeah, TED Talks <laughs> and Neil deGrasse Tyson's, like Star Talk. After you're done listening to this, listen to Neil deGrasse Tyson's <laughs> Star Talk podcast. But then, you know, you're reading all these things, and like, okay, what is that theory? And then there's ways that, well, there's like almost animation now. We actually had a great Cosmo epi- Cosmos episode about light. About light? Yeah. Mm. But like I that it's weird because I'm incredibly inspired by science. Like not that I'm putting science. A, science. <laughs> not putting a ton of it. Blinded. Uh, <laughs> blinded by science. But um but the idea that uh uh, uh it, it it gets you so excited and even though I'm sitting there painting, I'm th- you know thinking about science, I'll go over there and check out a bunch of stuff, but it it at, when you get back to the easel, like I'm inspired, you know, <laughs> by like nature. Right. By the natural world and things that I completely do not understand. Right. <laughs> Thomas even Dolby. though even Thomas though they, Dolby, call us. Call yes. us a suggested donation podcast. <laughs> well, I'm trying to get. I and mean, donate generously. <laughs> Thomas Dolby, donate to suggested donation. Podcast. Well, you know that one story where I, I had a, a my studios down in Tribeca like years and years ago, and I oh. would um, uh, James, uh, my friend James, for my birthday got me a. a, a uh, workout membership. So I was like going there and I saw this guy and he's so happy and everybody was like, Hey, and he, I was like, why do I know him? This is years and years ago. And he would work out near me, like get on the bicycle or run like to the one right near me. And, and were you wearing all spandex? He was happy was because he's married to Belinda Carlisle. That's no, no. What ended up happening? I was like, he just keeps it all in. But I, I, whatever. I'm just having my headphones on, listening. You know, listening to my music and working out. And I'll see him in the uh, in the locker room. And then, like a year later, it was Neil deGrasse Tyson. And I was like, ah. Oh, and I came <laughs> this close to being his friend. Uh, like I knew it was him, and I didn't know because he wasn't uh, well known. I knew the name. Yeah, you guys would have been jazzercise buddies. Oh, I would have been his best friend. <laughs> Like, seriously, I, I would be starting. Like, Tony, I'm, I'm going to work at my pecs. You want to come? I'd be like, yes, whatever you want, Neil. Whatever you want, I will do because I want Where to. did you get those leg warmers, I Neil? I just want to be on the. I want to. If so, if anybody knows Neil deGrasse Tyson, tell him I want to be his friend. I just want to be like pals with him. He's so smart. Go to like the Bronx Science class reunion. I know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Photography is a big issue. I think it's been kind of a contentious conversation yeah. that we've had. I don't know if you want to have it, but I, it's something that you've like, I've read things that you've written about and it's something that you've devoted a lot of thought to is painting without photography. And I think a lot of people now, because it's accessible, I mean, everybody's carrying a it's so pretty accessible. powerful camera in their yeah. pocket. Uh, it seems like uh, a lot of people will argue that you know uh, why not? It's just a, it's just another tool in the in the kit, and uh, I, I know that that's something that you've thought a lot about. I just want to yeah, and I, I don't use photographs, but for artists that do, that's fine. They're doing right. something different. In fact, I want them to do something different because if we're all doing the same thing, it'd be really boring out world <laughs> out there. <laughs> And, you know, every artist is somewhat of an egotist because they think that what they're doing is the best way to accomplish their goals. So, you right. know, what I'm doing is the best way for me to do it. Right. Well, it is but the best way for you, for you to do it. it. Right. Yeah. And that's the key. It's for you to do it. It's an in- individual thing. 
So if other artists are doing something different, that's good. I want I don't want them all doing what I'm doing. I want them to do their own thing. <laughs> right. Uh, but you know, my thing is not using photographs, and there are a lot of reasons for it. Um, one of the most important is that I'm I'm painting light, and for me, um, light is a really important aspect of my painting. But if I'm copying from a photograph, I'm not painting light, which is made out of photons. I'm painting sort of pigments and sort of matching one color to another color. Right. And that's completely different than interpreting light, which is composed of photons and how it interacts with you know the objects that we we have in our universe. So mm-hmm. um, there would be somewhat for me there would be somewhat of a dishonesty if I called myself if I was saying oh, I'm really capt- trying to capture the light, but I was copying from an image yeah. that had already captured the light, then mm-hmm. I'm copying from that image. In a the completely light. different way than your yeah, eyes. Yeah, and if I'm ter- interpreting it, I'm interpreting something that's not light. I'm interpreting a pigment rather than light. Um, so that's one of the main reasons that I don't use photographs. Um, the other thing is, even when I was a kid, the, the magic was creating something out of nothing. Yeah. And that's why a lot of my paintings are you know imaginary now. This whole idea of creating this three-dimensional world um, completely on your own is really fascinating to me. And even if I'm painting in plein air, I'm still creating something on my own because the painting that I'm doing has very little relationship to what I'm seeing or Mm -hmm. what I'm experiencing, I should say. Because a painting is a flat, one-dimensional surface that has different shapes of color on it. And if you're looking at a mountain, it has, you know, three-dimensionality and and it's has things on it that are blowing in the wind and living and it's deteriorating and it's living in time and space. And this thing that I've just created isn't really living in time and space. It's a flat one-dimensional depiction. But if I do a good job of that depiction, then that one depiction fools us into thinking that it is a three-dimensional thing that's existing in time and space. So it's a a really fun transition, taking the three-dimensional world, flattening it out on two dimensions with different colors and shapes yeah and then convincing ourselves that it's back into the three-dimensional yeah. world again and if i were using a camera well the camera already, already did all that magic stuff of you know taking the three-dimensional world and reducing it down to two dimensions so i just wouldn't get as much of a bang for my buck and i wouldn't get that buzz that i get when it's like oh i've created this i made yeah. this yeah, yeah make yeah. this thing up completely it's just out of my imagination i mean that's something that i yeah i'm always kind of inspired to go into the studio and create something that's never existed doesn't you know it's just purely like vomiting your mind onto the canvas (laughs) yeah um and also i like i like the simplicity of my methods i mean i I, in a way they're complex i use a lot of tools but they're also the rudimentary tools that seagull feathers (laughs) (laughs) who doesn't have a seagull feather (laughs) kicking what kind of tool like what kind of tools what what are examples of that oh i have this um Martha Stewart striating tool, which is like kind of a wheel. It's a, like like a pinwheel, kind of like a spur? Yeah, but it's got like, you know, 50 pinwheels in a row. Tiny little uh, discs, I guess you would call them, like on a, a handle. Little... And you roll it along the paint, and it makes texture. Oh, oh and you I get this. You this... Looks, it looks like a torture device, like a small yeah, torture device. Yeah. Yeah. What's it actually used for? It's used, if you painted a wall in a, in a room and you wanted to give it a striated effect, you would paint uh-huh. the wall, then you would get some glazing with liquid and a little paint paint the wall again and drag this through the wet paint and it would sort of make a little bit of a texture and also deposit and um, remove the paint in the striated pattern. But I've been using it for like painting the ocean at a distance because you have this 
you know, countless waves. Yeah. And so how do you do that? And I thought, well, you know, painting them, it looks too anal and time consuming. <laughs> and it just doesn't have that life and liveliness that a wave does. Right. But this creates the texture. So I'll, I'll create this texture, then I'll let it dry, put a glaze on, wipe off the glaze. And I've got this um, surface that has the appearance of just countless waves you know, on the, on the yeah, broad yeah, expanse yeah. of sea. So I use that. I have um, wood graining tools that put the grain in the wood. And I use them a lot of times for um, like a wake of a ship I used it for. How do you do? You have, what is that? What's a wood graining? Thing? It's a rubber uh, triangle shape with three different sides. And each side has a unique um, pattern I, in it. And you drag that through the wet glaze. And there again, it wipes off the glaze. I just, it's so, hold on. Just so you know, I'm not totally full of it. Because he's normally this? full of it. I, as I was walking here, we're at the Selman Gumby Club. <laughs> I, um, as we were walking here, I, there's a there's an art store, and I just bought that. Oh yeah, those are great. The yeah. rubber white <laughs> like tools. The, the little rubber thing. I the, use them all the time. Yeah, I what was is, walking over called? here, and I was like, went just went in to see if I needed anything, yeah. and it's one of these like it's like it looks like a paintbrush, but it has like a rubber. Nib, nib, on, it. nib yeah. on it that you generally it's got I use, like a little bit of a point. Yeah, to erase yeah. paint. Like, yeah. so if I'm doing some fine lettering and it kind of spreads out, I take this, I just wipe it off. And I don't know. I, so. I use it for, I'll put a glaze on and, and then I'll draw it in the wet glaze. And like, I've used it for like grass and in waves too. I'll use it for waves. I'll put a glaze in the ocean. And then you just then use the wipe off tool and just sort of wiggle it along in the wet glaze. And it gives the impression of waves and such. But I, by using all these tools, I also have, um, I do a lot of sand papering. I'll, I'll sand my, my surface a lot. Hmm. Do you paint with uh, lead? <laughs> No, I don't need lead. I've gotten rid of the lead in the studio. Really? Any reason <laughs> not, why? Not in time, unfortunately. Because you're sanding? <laughs> yeah. And oh, you know, then I'll come up for lunch. I man up on that. <laughs> and after I eat my sandwich, my hands are yeah. magically clean. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've done that so many times. Lead's apparently very sweet. Yeah. It is. No, it's they not used, apparent. It is. They used it would, <laughs> like, you know, it on ice cream. They used to put it on I've, in food back in the day to make it sweeter. Crazy. They didn't know back then. Um, but anyway, the, all the tools, they, <laughs> Diet Coke, they allow heard. me to create texture as well as um, color and shape and such with, with the surface of the paint. So there again, it gives another dimension to it. Well, I'm not just painting things. I'm also, in a way, carving them or sculpting yeah, them with right. the texture. Um, I use sponges. You know, I thought, well, watercolor guys can use sponges. Yeah. Why can't oil painters? So, and I use uh, these scruffy brushes that I don't clean, and I cut... And all ragged edges. Weird shapes into Weird them shapes. so you can just... That's yeah. another thing that stood out to me when we were painting in Italy. I was look, Your brushes were like... <laughs> they were all like Don King's hair. Yeah. <laughs> You're Every, like, is this guy even a pro? <laughs> it was doing? your material. with those I think, brushes. And maybe you were using a paper palette. Were you using the paper palette? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I still use a paper palette. <laughs> Because we're out with landscape painting, and you know your palette's full, and time is of the essence. So it's faster just to rip the thing off, and you get a nice Crumple clean surface. <laughs> and I have this thing that I made myself, kind of this contraption of a plein air kit. That's a combination of combining things and making things. But I have my paints arranged in such a way that they stay out, all, you know, day after day, in a um, little. Um, compartments, uh-huh. and then I just change the palette. But I still have my paint, paint there, so I'm not always squirting mm-hmm. out paints and wasting time squirting out paint. 
But um, that's why you were so far ahead of me. <laughs> that, see, I knew you were unscrewing. Let me unscrew the, <laughs> yeah. the blue. Okay. And now I got to get the Viridian get cap back on. Blue. Oh, where'd that cap go? I dropped it in the grass. <laughs> no. Now I got to find that. But <laughs> when you're working from life in, in the landscape, I mean, light changes so quickly. So, I mean, it makes sense to be like time is of the essence. Yeah. Actually, when I was in Wyoming, I had the wonderful thing about going to new places to paint is you always run into problems and then you try to solve them. And one of the issues I had in Wyoming the first couple of days was I was painting these mountain peaks. They're really complicated. There was snow and there was, you know, light and shadow and crags and there was rocks and there were trees and the scrubby grass and such. And usually I work everything kind of at once. And then I, and towards the end, I start finishing things. But I like to think, keep things moving along pretty much at the same pace so I can compare color to color and my shape, my composition. But out there, the light's moving and it's creating these completely different shadows every half hour. The sh- you know, this peak that you were painting in sunlight, now it's in shadow and there's a cast shadow on that part that was in sunlight. And I couldn't keep up with it. So then I realized I have to paint sort of each section of the peak individually. So I it's had like this painting. A, a moment like, at, so it's like it's over like over many days, you mean? It's like a combination. The same? No, over one day, which the interesting thing was that one peak would have one type of lighting and yeah. the next would have slightly different and the third would be slightly different than that. But they're close enough. I usually would do this when the light was going to be somewhat consistent. So you're not really aware of it, but I think subconsciously you are. And that's one of the things about plein air painting that fascinates me is that you're taking this maybe two or three or four, depending on how many hours time span, or if it's sunset, it might be 15 minutes, but it's more effective during the middle of the day when you work a long period of time on a scene and you're compressing all that time into one instantaneously viewed subject. Yeah. So in a way, it's like you're, you're fooling around with time and space because you can kind of stop time and then combine it into one image, which is something you can't do with photography because if you do like a long exposure photograph, it doesn't yeah. look... It doesn't look anything expo- like... Yeah. Right, yeah, it looks, it looks like, like a long exposure, exposure. blur. <laughs> yeah. But with landscape painting, you can take these, you know, your you're painting something that evolved over maybe a two or th- two hour period and compressing it into an instantaneously viewed sub um, image. Right. And that, I think that's one of the things that gives, you know, good landscape painting, plein air landscape painting, that sense of energy that they have that, you know, there's this thing that evolved and you suddenly you're making it so it, it didn't evolve. It's like it appeared all at once, but yeah. there are slight variations in the scene that, it, that did evolve over that period of time. But it seems like, um, when you're because you're such a pro at it that a little bit of just how you do things help with getting your vision across for example you know when i see some of like some of your really dramatic paintings or um, some of the sunset paintings and i know from doing plein air painting that you have about 15 minutes or 20 minutes before it's like right when it gets there you're like you better go for it because you only have about 15 minutes to paint like some of them, and if you go too early, it gets like way better. Yeah, the, yeah, the longer you wait, I the better it gets. up canvases yeah. so that yeah. I get like three paintings. So done. I was gonna just say because I know we're gonna get a lot of emails because there's a lot of people who just want to know tech stuff, and 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 it's cool to know tech stuff. I yeah. love when we talk about the science and the feeling and all that stuff and the emotion. But just like, how do you set it up? Because yours are so dramatic and they're just they're so beautiful. How do you get like that? that sunset painting that you're just like, oh, you got the perfect moment. Or are yeah. they of that perfect moment? Oh, yeah. Or are you just are you making, just making it up? that up? Uh, no, the, I, I've sort of got my sunset down 
somewhat. And, you know, there's a lot of them that just don't work because you have to paint so quickly. And uh, I always paint on a toned canvas at sunset because if you paint on white, everything looks dark, so you start making yeah. it lighter. Yeah, yeah. And also, what, you Do know, you tone it like me- a middle tone or a darker tone? Somewhat dark. Somewhat sort dark. Sort of a dark, warm tone. So I do for for nice sunset, tone. you have like sunset. sunset. I have sunset panels, panels. that I take out because I don't, usually don't tone my daylight paintings. Oh, you work on white? Yeah, for your daylight paintings because yeah. you want the brightness of the of the, the paint bouncing off. Yeah, the and oftentimes I'll do an underpainting, a value underpainting. Right. So um, I don't really need a toned surface at, for the daylight paintings. But the sunset, and also I sometimes tend to paint dark. So having a white surface makes me paint a little bit lighter. Mm-hmm. But at sunset, you want to paint dark because it's dark anyway. So your pupils are you know, kind of closed, are yeah, opened up, yeah. and everything looks looks dark so you keep trying to make everything look lighter Lighter. because you're looking into the sun so your panel looks really dark right and so if you have it white when you put yellow on that it's going to look dark if you look put yellow on a white piece of paper it looks darker than the paper so you say oh this yellow is really dark i have to lighten it up and then you put blue on it looks like black so you have to lighten that up next to the white yeah right and so when you finish you get this pale washed out looking sunset so i always make a really dark toned panel at sunset because then when i put the yellow on it looks like a nice bright yellow yeah. and i know i don't have to lighten it up <laughs> do you do a color or is it kind of neutral but dark um it's brownish sort of a, a burnt umber like usually burnt umber. yeah and then when i paint the sunset i start sort of picking around at the edges, I sort of start slowly and look at the sky and try to anticipate what's going to happen. And for about five minutes, I'll do that. And I see a cloud coming. And I think, well, that cloud's going to be here, maybe. So I kind of put the cloud where I think it's going to <laughs> so be. So you're playing a little game of chess. Yeah, with kind of, exactly. Yeah. It is chess. Yeah. He's trying to anticipate the moves. <laughs> so Nature. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Sucker. <laughs> playing against God. <laughs> and then you have about, you know, three or four minutes of actually working from what you're seeing. Yeah. Where it looks like, yeah, this is what I'm painting. And then you paint for maybe 10 minutes after that from memory, what yeah. you saw, and sort of cleaning up things. And it's kind of, by the end of it, you're painting by rote because everything looks dark. It's like getting yeah, dark. it's dark at that and point. And you just say, well, I know this is kind of my blue puddle of paint, and I need a little, you know, redder tone, so I'll put a little red, I guess, in that. And you put <laughs> it on and say, oh, this is working. <laughs> and then you look and say, boy, it came out pretty good. And you take it back to your studio and you put the light on and, and like, say, whoa. whoa. <laughs> Where did that but orange come from? you can go from? out every evening at sunset at and put time. it at the, and it'll look good at sunset. Ah. <laughs> it'll only look good because you painted it in a sunset light. So it would yeah. only look good at sunset at lighting, sunset. right? You take it into studio you're lighting it back and it's going to look completely different. You're bringing it back to its like home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, one thing, uh, when you do, some of your... Even your sketches, your plein air sketches look very finished. Do you go back and paint like many sessions at times to really get more information, or is it like almost one all, and done? It's almost always one and done. Wow. Um, Do you adjust I them at all in the that. studio? Nothing major. I'll clean up the sky. I usually right. have my clamp mark because I oh, carry right. my paintings yeah, yeah. back from the field with a clamp. Yeah, of course. And when I clamp them to my easel there's a spot in the yeah, square on the, little, the top yeah, that doesn't get the have triangle paint on it. Like angle it. take yeah. a bug then, out bug or two out yeah there's bugs and you know twigs and stuff yeah. and so i clean them up but i try not to make any changes that are very dramatic back at the studio because there again i'm getting further from the source right and if i start changing things suddenly it's not what i was doing when i was there it's what i was doing in the studio which is a different 
type of painting, the plein air painting, you're sort of a little bit frantic because yeah. you have to paint fast and you, you've got two hours in it. You don't want to screw it up at this point. It's like a performance. Yeah, it's a performance. Do and you... in the studio, it's slow and contemplative right. and it's a di much different experience. So I don't like to mix the two, really. I like to keep the plein air painting as plein air painting. Do you and almost have to develop like a do you almost have to develop like a thick skin to be like when I take this back it's not going to be as <laughs> awesome as this what is I gonna just hurt saw when I turn yeah. the lights but on. It, but there's something amazing there's something beautiful you almost have to talk yourself I mean I, I say this through experience where you're like you go home and you're like all right but it but it has moments you know yeah your yours are different <laughs> yours are but it's, the idea ah. is that do you develop this like yeah I'm like it's I'm not going to touch it at, in my studio because it was about the experience. And even if it's not every little thing I wanted it to be in there, it's what it is. And there's something really authentic and great about that. Leave it alone. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of my paintings I get back and, you know, in the field, I felt pretty good about it. I said, boy, it looks pretty much like what I got. And uh, you take it back and it's like, ah, oh, so disappointing. It's like, oh, I thought I had it. And, a lot of times it's the composition was just bad. Yeah. And a lot of times it's because I didn't have time to really think about the composition or I wanted to catch the lighting before it changed. And so um, the composition is usually one of the biggest reasons why a painting isn't working back at the studio. Because mm. usually I can get the, the elements the pretty good. or something. And I can paint what I want to paint so it looks like what it looks like. So it's 90% of the time, if it's kind of a disappointment at the, at the studio, it's the composition. Then but, you, I, but there again, I can use that information. But you can fix that. Rearrange the composition, yeah. a larger painting. Because in, all of my, my plein air paintings are really a way to paint a larger painting. In a way, they're not... They're, my goal isn't to be a plein air painter, it's to be a landscape painter. Right. Yeah. Plein air is the vehicle I use to the understand notes, the landscape, the, the notes and the, the workbook and all that. Oftentimes, they, not oftentimes, but sometimes they came out good enough that I can put them out there as finished works of art in themselves. But I probably put out, you know, one in 10 right. mm. as finished works of art. The other ones, a lot of times they'll be fine, but I say, you know, I just don't want to spend time finishing it up and putting it out there because I've got other things going on. And it's not the most fascinating one I've done. And People do respond to them, though. I found, yeah. like, when you put a frame on a plein air sketch, I mean, I... I same thing, like for me, they're, they're material that I will, you know, use to either understand what I'm seeing or ultimately to paint something from. But yeah, when you put them in a gallery, people seem to really respond to just the directness of them. And it's hard for that. It's hard to translate that into a larger studio yeah. painting. Right. It's that energy that I was talking about earlier. Yeah. And it's a different, they're different types of paintings so they should be different you right. shouldn't have that same energy in the studio I, I sometimes i hear artists say that they want to create the energy they had in the field in the studio right. which is there again it's fine that's what they're doing which is different from what i'm doing but right. i don't want to do that because the studio is a completely different environment than mm -hmm. the field and i want the field to have unique energy and the studio to have a new, unique energy and in the field i'm i am much more energetic as i said you know you're hurrying you're kind of nervous you want to make sure that you can paint what you're seeing like in two hours or three hours or but in the studio it's contemplative for me it's very contemplative it's deliberate yeah. it's sort of a slow thoughtful process which is much different than painting in the field so i want them to be different i want mm -hmm. them to be look different because they were different so do you even consider them two completely different pieces of art yes uh, yeah they're like 
completely different. Like almost different art forms. Absolutely. They're, they're created in different environments. They have different requirements. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm looking for different things and they come out looking differently, which is good. I think I wouldn't yeah. want my studio paintings to look like my planner paintings. <laughs> it's like one of the two would be false for me <laughs> right? because you know, they're, they're so different. How much time do you spend in the studio versus in the bush <laughs> in the <field>? <laughs> <laughs> or um, out in the landscape? It's always scattered and sort of varied. Um, in the summer, I like to be out painting a lot. This past summer, I had a lot of commitments, so I was in the studio way, way more than I wanted to be. Mm. Um, but I'll do maybe three or four sort of long painting trips a year, like going to Italy. We went to Italy uh, last year for a couple of weeks and um, to California for a week and Jackson Hole and things. And then I try to get out every now and then around my house if I have an afternoon with a, an hour, a few hours to, to kill that I'm committed to something, I'll run out and do a plein air painting. And so it's sort of scattered. Um, do you ever find yourself in the studio just, ugh, I don't want to be here, yes. I want to be outside? <laughs> yes, all the time. <laughs> I love, I didn't even get it out. You're like, yes. Do you prefer that? I mean, just as an activity to be outside, like that energy, the, I mean, I know you're incredibly energetic. And when we were painting in Italy, you were off jogging like five miles before the sun came up and then painting all day, drinking at night and up at 5 a.m. to jog again. It's the drinking that made it all possible. (laughs) Well, it didn't make it possible for me. (laughs) Ted was telling me about that. He's like, we go there. He's like, he gets up early. He jogs. Then he goes there, blows us all away. And then does like twice as many paintings. It's like you know, you're painting Terminator. And then, like, you know, goes to sleep later than us and gets up and <laughs> jogs again, and we're a mess. And he's like, boom, cranking him out. We're, we're, he's a superhuman. Meet this it's, guy. It's Italy. It does yeah. that to you. Yeah, Italy is. Well, it didn't do that to me. <laughs> <laughs> but you do often find yourself longing to be outside yeah. when you're if i might draw this i'd probably be in the studio about 20 percent of the time and uh. because when i'm outside i have all these ideas for things i want to do in the studio so if i've been outside a lot i'm kind of anxious to get in the studio try them out and yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) but ideally like probably 80 20 would be good but in reality i'm probably in the studio about 60 or 70 percent of the time well new england's cold yeah damn cold what do you do in the winter do you, um, I mean, do you still get out there? Do you have like a technique for all our listeners I who are to like, what? Ah, <laughs> so you're like, you know what? You're just going to follow the warm weather. You're not going to deal with the winter. No, I, I'll do um, usually one long, like a week long painting trip in the winter. Um, in March is good because it's not bitter cold. The days are a little bit longer, so you get another hour of painting or so. Yeah. And there's lots of snow around still. I won't go in December. It's just cold and miserable, and it's dark at four o'clock. <laughs> so you don't have any like yeah. secret little like, you know what? I figured out this I mean, way to be paint outside and D'Alessio has some great uh, blog tips about that oh yeah yeah like putting yeah like those little the warmer things in your boots yeah standing on cardboard yeah he's got a million of me such an active plein air painter (laughs) you know great stuff you know what I used to do is just uh uh, I I I did a couple you know in in the winter with you just stay stay in the car yeah. Stay in a car and like look roll out the down window. The window. Yeah, every once in a while, roll, it's getting kind of foggy. I need it. Oh, that's what it looks like. Yeah. Just stay in a car. I'm a total wuss. So, so you know, I'm a big snowboarder. I'm just like, nah, I'm not going to get well, cold. Well, plein air painting in the winter is 
hard because it's cold. And like, you just and it seeps and you, in. But I've got one of these winter insulated, you know, the one piece jumpsuits like the road guys wear. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that's great for winter painting because you know when you're hiking to where you're going to paint, you're hot and you're getting sweaty, which is really bad. You know, and then wet you get really in the cold, winter, yeah. and then the chill comes in. But with this, I don't. I put it in my backpack. And then I just carry trying in a paint. I get set up. And after 10 or 15 minutes, the cold starts seeping in. I put this jumpsuit on. And it's got the big zippers in the legs. So it yeah. fits over the boots. And I'm toasty warm. I've never gotten cold. It's great. <laughs> like a true Northeasterner. <laughs> Did you, um, do, is there something about when you're out and, um, you know, finding a spot or going to a new spot to be like, I'm, I want to hike. I want to kind of get in there. I want to get off the road. I want... You know, it's nice to be able to drive to a spot, park your car, boom, just set up and go. Yeah. Because there's something about it where you're like, I'm going like to hike hiking, like an hour into like, you know, into the bush. You yeah, know, I did that in Wyoming. And then it was looking like I was getting kind of into bear country. Yeah, you <laughs> got to be careful. And yeah. I didn't buy my bear spray because I thought, I'm gonna, <laughs> I was only there for a week. And I thought, you know, do I really need the bear spray? Yeah. But, um, yeah, that was in the back of my mind. Did but you see any bears? But do you like no, that? No, I didn't. But I <laughs> flew home with a guy that was a photographer, and one of his goals was to see a grizzly bear. And he told me that, and I said, well, my goal was to not see a grizzly bear. It's funny, the Hudson River School painters, a lot of them, you, you have this image of them hiking in, and you know, because they must have been doing that back then. And then you find out that there was actually like... A this train. spot that they all Wasn't there painted like was a, yeah there yeah. was a train station and a hotel like a really decadent hotel yeah they have their man come out with their their drink at four o'clock and he cleans cleans their palette painting yeah. on the porch of the Catskill yeah. Mountain House <laughs> but do you like that but yeah like, I, I like I really like hiking and yeah. I've gone up to Tuckman Ravine in Mount Washington a lot and painted up there. Which is a, it's a nice hike and it's spectacular when you get there. Mount Washington in New Hampshire. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, um, earlier before we started recording, my buddy, our buddy James Connolly was here, and for his uh, James Connolly, 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 yeah. for his fortieth, and I've mentioned this in past podcasts. Um, we went to Patagonia, and you know, I'm I'm essentially in the studio all the time. I don't I don't. I just don't get out landscape painting, even though I, I complain. He doesn't get out much at I don't all. get him out, out <laughs> They much don't let him out much. Yeah, pretty much. Well, and I, I complain. Yeah. I complain to Ted because it's like some of the greatest times I've ever had as a... Is complaining. Is complaining. <laughs> as an artist was some of the trips we took, the landscape painting uh, trips, because they were they felt the most pure. Like I wasn't setting anything up. You were just going out there and you were doing something I read. It's like you're kind of being like a re, like you're recording the experience, you know, um, that I read from you. You were saying like an artist as a, a record keeper. And I, there, there, there's something kind of beautiful about that. But anyway, we were down in Patagonia and I was I w- James is a great artist, but we were with everybody else wasn't an artist and um, or that type of artist. And um, one of my goals is to be like to get people like you and Ted and and Mark D'Alessio and all these other great landscape painters to go to a place like Patagonia because it's exactly what you said. I, I, how would I ever, ever um, try to describe this like beautiful loneliness, this amazing uh, visual experience I saw without going there with paint and mm-hmm. being with like a group of painters to be, to make it like this amazing experience also. Um, so it's like the idea of like, getting in there and hiking into these areas that are like not that common. Mm. And I guess that's why I was asking that question. 
by the way, are you interested <laughs> going down to Patagonia? <laughs> yeah, that sounds interesting. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> the landscape yeah. looks amazing. It's amazing. I, mean, I think I'm sort of overdoing going south if I go to Patagonia for the winter. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, you overshot Florida. I'm going south for the winter. <laughs> Half of the planet. <laughs> you know what I thought would be interesting? I don't know if this will be interesting, but uh, I thought uh, one of your paintings that stood out to me, because I actually had the chance to see it in person at the John Pence Gallery in San Francisco, was uh, Light Effect Hudson River, and we can put an image up uh, on, you know, on the uh, website. We will. Although it won't do it justice. I mean, texture is so much a part of that, but I was wondering if you could take us through the process. Like, did you start doing a plein air and, you know, exactly how that painting yeah. became what it was? Because for me, it's it's one of the greatest landscapes I've ever seen by a living landscape painter. Mm, it's, thanks. Um, well, and did you paint with sunglasses on? <laughs> I'll get into that. The light effect is intense. Sort of. <laughs> um, one of the things I like to do is work on a theme and really explore it and sort of, there again, take it apart and then sort of put the landscape back together again. Right. And if I did a one-shot deal of something that intrigued me, I feel like I really hadn't explored it fully enough to really understand it. So I've been quite interested for the last, you know, eight or nine years on painting, this idea of painting sunlight reflecting on water. Right. Trying to get the sunlight to glow with, we have, all we have is plain old white paint, you know, the thing to right. paint a wall with. Which but, is nowhere near as bright yeah. as light. It's, right. It's dark. It's the highest put it value next to light. Right. Yeah. So we're really limited in our value range. And so I'm tr- I've been sort of experimenting with trying to get that same sensation that I get when I look at sunlight out of white paint. And it's a, the adjacent colors next to it. So um, there's a lot of, I've probably done maybe eight or nine sort of larger major paintings of looking into the glare of the sunlight and the water. And they resulted from a lot of uh, plein air sketches that I've done. The first one mm-hmm. I really did, that got me inspired in this was I was in Mount Desert Island. We were at the top of myself. In Maine. In Maine. I was with a friend of mine, Hal DeWaltoff, and we were painting um, Eagle Lake, looking down into oh, it in the afternoon sunlight. And... <laughs> I just love the the mountain or the hill behind Eagle Lake was casting a shadow in the sunlight. It was just a beautiful scene. I thought, I wonder if I can paint that. <laughs> so I had my hat and I like tilted it way down over my eye and sort of squinted and painted out of the corner of my eye so it wasn't totally blinded. And I did a little 9 by 12 sketch. And I really liked it. And I made a larger version out of it. Was your panel toned dark? Yeah. Yeah, that was toned dark, yeah. actually. Um, it was almost sun. It was my probably my sunset panel that I was using. Right. It was like, Darn, it was yeah. a great sunset. I already lost it. <laughs> but um, so I made a painting out of that that I really liked, and I thought I really liked this idea of trying to paint sunlight with just plain old paint. And also, you know, there again, while I'm interested in science, and the photon is the you know the particle that scientists really use to try to understand the universe. The photon and light's been really kind of special to me. So I've been doing this series of paintings where I'm trying to capture that brilliance of the sunlight and the water, and eventually it became much more textural. The first one I had done, Eagle Lake, it's painted pretty flat and smoothly. Mm-hmm. And Light Effect Hudson River was quite textural in, in yeah. the water. Um, and there again, the, it, it's almost like you're looking at a field of diamonds. And I thought, well, why should I have them all smooth? Because diamonds are sort of these... Um, angular, hard, like three-dimensional yeah. type of thing. So I started giving a little bit more texture in the water. 
And that sort of combines a couple of themes I've been working on. The other is uh, painting the Hudson River around the Palisades from both sides, from the New York side looking to New Jersey and the New Jersey side looking back. And so um, it's sort of this continuing theme that I've been working on. I just sent a painting to Cavalier Galleries up in um, 57th Street, which is looking from the Palisades to New York City with that glare on the water and a couple yeah. of ships coming in um, the middle of the painting and trying to get... When you look at the painting, you want to squint, and you can't quite see things are right in the middle of the glary patch of the water, and trying to recreate that in paint. Yeah. So, the, you know, there again, it sort of combines my interest in, you know, physics and art and yeah. uh, all the typical artistic issues that we deal with, color and composition and edges and such. And are you developing that texture in the plein air studies, or is that something that comes later in the studio? A little bit, but it's mostly later. For my plein air work, I use this really thick white called underpainting white. It's made by Winsor & Newton, mm -hmm. and it, it sets up really quickly, which is what I like. And that allows me to really get my paintings to a much higher degree of finish because it sets up so quickly, particularly in the sun, that you can keep painting on top of it. And it's like painting on dry dry paint right and so you don't get that soupy you know paint everywhere and just smearing <laughs> around and you can't get anything to is that like an alkyd based white um probably there's some type of alkyd component in it yeah mm -hmm. so i use that in the plein air work and it's thick so it does give a little bit of texture and if you let it set, set up a little bit you can paint on top of that and you have even more texture so with some messed up brushes? With some messed up brushes. <laughs> or the Martha Stewart <laughs> spur wheel tool. I always have my messed up brushes in the field. Right. I well, mean, you, I remember that. Years ago, I was painting a tree, and I had this square end brush. And I spent so many time, so much time trying to make my brush mark look unsquare. Like a flat? A flat. It was a flat, <laughs> yeah. And I'm Flats thinking, are useless. Oh. No, they're not what, useless. They're useless. I don't know what people <laughs> they are saying. Just get a filbert. If you're painting a, a building, they're very useful. <laughs> yeah, maybe, but they're useless. <laughs> but anyway, I spent all this time trying to make the brush mark look unsquare. And I thought, why am I doing this? And so I got out my scissors, and I cut it all ragged. And so it, <laughs> it had this organic shape like the tree did, and branches and leaves. And I started painting with that, and suddenly 90% of my work was done, and then I could just sort of finesse it at the end. But, you know, I spent it, it's so much easier if you're going to paint an organic, sort of irregular, ragged shape to use an organic, irregular, ragged brush. Ah. So those are my <laughs> screwed up <laughs> brushes. So you messed ragged them up brushes, yourself. Messed up brushes. <laughs> I do it myself. It's intentional. Yeah. <laughs> do you so, want, go ahead. So you start with the plein air looking into the light and how does that painting i mean the hudson the light effect hudson river painting was that based pretty directly on a study you have a, a a boat going through the scene going through just like you were describing in the palisades paintings going through the light effect and then smoke kind of filtering up through the light effect is that yeah. something that you observed or was that something that came later was was were you following pretty faithfully from a study or um, a little of both. I did mm -hmm. a, a painting of the scene, um, mm -hmm. but looking into the light, I really couldn't see anything in the cliffs or anything. It was just a dark silhouette. Right. So in the sketch, it's pretty much a dark silhouette band where the, the uh, trees and the cliffs are in the, in the background. And there were some barges that were anchored there, so I put them in. But in the painting, I added a tugboat, I think, tied up to one of the barges. Oh, yeah. um, so I enhanced and changed things around. I think I put a buoy in the, in the painting yeah. that wasn't there. But you know, sort of the inspiration was from the planar sketch that I had done and sort of the, the meat of the painting. and the. 
how did you how did you figure out how to paint the mountains that are you know on the far side on the far bank the landmass i mean the the light is like eating away at those mountains as it does when you're out there but when you're painting it often you have to make them so dark you can't you know you can't get that effect and then they become kind of orange or yellowish in your painting how do you I mean, is that just experience? Yeah, I always say that my paintings are a combination of empirical observation, rational thought, and imagination. So the empiricism comes in from spending so much time looking at those cliffs and sort of understanding the structure of them and the the anatomy of them. And then the rational part comes in from saying, well, if I put this cliff here with this tree on top of the cliff, what's going to happen to the light as it filters through the tree and hits that cliff? And so then you're sort of rationalizing what things would look like under those situations. And then the imagination is coming up with the whole scenario in the studio where I'm saying, okay, I like this sketch, but how can I make it into a real painting rather than just a transcription of the sketch, which really isn't very much. So it's a lot of it's, you know, experience, the rational part where you're out there so much that you kind of know how light's going to react as it interacts with these different forms of nature. Mm -hmm. And then you you also know, you know, what the forms would look like. Like, what type of trees do they have in the Palisades? Yeah. Right. Um, I'm not going to put a, a willow tree in the top of the Palisades yeah. <laughs> because it's very dry up there and rocky, and willow trees like wet, swampy areas. So right. Sort of, you know, with experience and observation, you kind of know what, you know, what things would look like and what would be there. Do you ever, I mean, I, not to break off the subject but I was I couldn't help but start thinking about when you were talking about imagination and we're talking about landscape did you ever look at some of those like matte paintings from like the movies you know back in the day where they actually before computer graphics and stuff they used to do these unbelievably imaginative paintings that look so convincing and they would do all these things that it just well as you were describing this to me I was like thinking about like all these kind of great matte painters from who used to paint on glass I believe yeah and I don't know if they did they were they trained? I mean, I don't remember. Were they I'm trained? I'm sure they probably were. To, probably an illustration or something. Something that, well, like the Wizard of Oz. You know, all yeah, the backgrounds those, those of paintings. that are awesome. Well, also the guys who painted the backgrounds in the natural in the history. Natural yeah, history yeah, That's the other thing like I was thinking about paintings. as you were thinking saying yeah. that is those are two things. What was it? There's a few of them, but there's one guy in there particular. There was one guy who used to paint his plein airs naked. Yeah, to oh, really? be like part of, wasn't he like to be part of like the light? I don't know why, but I guess if you get out there far enough away from everybody, I'm why guessing not? guessing not in Patagonia. <laughs> no, 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 you get kind of cold. Some of those are unbelievable, though. Yeah, they are. They're, they're they really spectacular are spectacular paintings. Amazing paintings. You go there and you're like, Whoa. I mean, obviously they didn't do that on site, um, but they, but you could tell that, I, I'm, I'm going to assume that they just did, tons and tons of notes something similar to what you're doing in the sense that they were there with just tons of note taking plain air paintings and taking all the stuff back and sort of figuring it out yeah they sent him to africa for years yeah yeah and he did you know countless drawings and paintings and such and then brought them back and created those amazing backdrops they're just they're they're just absolutely beautiful paintings are all your studies paintings or do you do drawings and do you take notes also i do some drawings i do notes i mean i there's this painting I did. It's called um, "Thunderstorm Over the West from a Plane Window," and I, I was saw that. Flying. That was so. <laughs> oh, yeah. I saw that, I was, and I was like, "Oh, that's such a good idea." <laughs> well, I was flying over the Midwest, and there was this amazing thunderstorm out the window, and I, I had nothing. I just had a ballpoint pen and like a, some note paper, so I did a sketch of it. And I said, "I have to paint this." I did a lot of written notes, 
um, telling me like what the colors, colors yeah. Like yeah, yeah. were yeah. And, and such. And um, years ago, uh, well, I don't know, five, six years, seven or eight years ago, my older son was in college. And my youngest son had done a semester in the Bahamas at, at school. So for the first time in like 20 years, Patty and I had no commitments. We could go. So we said, let's drive <laughs> cross country. So we drove across country. And I, wasn't gonna, I brought my paints, but I really wasn't going to paint. It was mostly yeah. just a fun sightseeing, explore the country trip, which if you can do it, you should drive across the country. It's just amazing. But anyway, it was so beautiful. Halfway across, I had to stop and get some acrylics. And I would sit <laughs> in the passenger seat and paint these like mountain peaks that would be 20 miles away <laughs> as we're driving down the highway, really super, super quick, just trying to get them in because the, the scenery is just so beautiful. I said, I can't not paint this. Because yeah. <laughs> I always feel like if I haven't painted, I really haven't seen it. Yeah, and yeah. I haven't experienced it. It seems too superficial just to look at it. It's a funny thing to just sit there. I mean, it for me, it doesn't feel like I don't feel like I've had a fun vacation if I haven't had the chance to paint. I always take my paints. Yeah. it's just any place I'd want to go for vacation, I would obviously want to paint. There. <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> that's the whole point of the vacation yeah. is to get to paint. I take my paints, but when I don't paint, I feel like a such a loser. Oh, it's horrible. I'm yeah. always just like Ugh. such guilt. Yeah, yeah, you have this like, guilty, weird thing. I'm not a real artist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I think I'm just I'm like, I brought child. all my paint and I didn't do Here anything. Here comes the self-loathing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you beat like yourself this. up on super accuracy or are you just like trying to get the effect? You're like, I'm not going to be too worried about exactly what temperature the color is. It, is it? it depends on what I'm painting. Sometimes I do with my students this exercise where we put the painting against the sky, have the sun shine on the painting, and you try to match the color exact. Indirect light, like so that the sun's really light. hitting. Right, yeah. because if you put it against the sky, it's always too dark. It's right. pure white, and it's already darker than the sky because yeah. it's in shadow. So I'll do that, and I'll, sometimes we'll have the ocean. We'll have it bisect the panel, so they have to paint the sky and the ocean the exact same color they see them. And it's fascinating for them because, first of all, they think the sky is much simpler than it is, and they realize that even in this small square that they're painting, there are all these complexities of color and value. Yeah. And so when they get the sky pretty close, then they move on to the ocean and they paint the ocean and they get that pretty close. And they look at the sky and the sky has changed just in the maybe 15 minutes they've been working on the ocean. So I have them keep chasing it for a while. They'll paint the sky again. And then when they finish that, the ocean has changed Change. again. So they paint that again. So it's kind of a good exercise for them because they can compare exact color to exact color. Right. And they can also um, see how subtle the changes are in, in you know atmosphere and light and how it changes what they're painting but it also um, shows them that you, at a certain point you can't keep chasing the light you have to sort of say well this is it and that's how it's got to stay how do you deal with that in the field do you is it like is there some general way that you do like do you paint the sky first and just stick your guns on the sky and then paint other do you put color notes down that reflect the sky that you happen to be seeing yeah know? I start sort of generally, I'll paint everything with sort of a, get it as close as I can sort of quickly, mm -hmm. just so I can compare more accurately one color to the, the next. And then I, with the second passage, I try to get really accurate with the colors that I see. But then again, if there's some intellectual thing I want to do to change the, um, what I'm painting from what I'm seeing, then I'll make the de that decision, like you know, mm -hmm. darkening the sky so right. certain things will have more impact I mean, they sit against the sky. Yeah. There's some, I mean, some of that is just like there is going to be some compression because paint is not light. Light is so much brighter. So you have to make some decisions somewhere along the way. Yeah. 
Yeah, you can't paint exactly what you see. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, what you yeah, learn. You know, one of the funny things is people think that, like, oh, the figure painting, that's the hardest thing to do. Uh-huh. It's actually really easy because you have a model that you can pose in any position so you get a great composition. Yeah. You can get the lighting exact so you can paint exactly what you see because the light bulb that's shining on the model, you can have the same light or bulb shining light. on your painting yeah. or you can paint by a north light window and have the same light on model and subject so you have the exact same range of values and it doesn't move it doesn't change and when you're outdoor painting you you you're the decks get stacked against you already <laughs> yeah. got, you don't have the range of values that you see right everything is changing by the minute yeah um and then you have the thing the big change is like a cloud comes and suddenly you're painting a cloudy scene when you <laughs> yeah. conceived of a sunny scene have you ever painted in ireland or scotland no and there's a reason why <laughs> <laughs> i mean i'm irish and you know in theory we have a little bit of the farm back there in the old country still yeah. i've never been there because you can't i, I would go there crazy. and it would rain every 15 and, minutes it's yeah it would drive radically me nuts. different yeah how often uh how how much time do you put towards teaching? Is it something you pursue? No, I don't do a real lot of teaching. I do uh, one workshop at my house on the Cape a year. It's a three-day. And then I, this year I'm doing Art of the Carolinas, which is in November. November this year? Yeah, How many? 12th and 13th, and that's two days. Has that been um, sold out yet? or, or? No, that, okay. that's so, just come on. So How can people find that information? Uh, they can go on their website, artofthecarolinas.com. And find your and find that yep. workshop. And as far as the workshop that you do at your at your place, um, is that something just that you can check on out your on website? Your, on yeah, your on my website. And then I did this year. I did one at the Providence Art Club. It was a two day workshop that was fun. Do you but keep... that's all I do. I do uh, three short workshops a year because you know mostly I'm a painter and I don't. I love doing the workshops because people are so nice and. For you know, two or three days, I got to talk about art nonstop <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. with people that like to listen to me yeah, talk yeah, nonstop right. for two or three days about art. Hanging on your every word. <laughs> yeah. Like, I never get this at home. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, Pat. <laughs> this is really interesting. <laughs> We're talking photons here. <laughs> My wife puts up with a lot. <laughs> Wait, hold on. He's going to be talking about photons again. <laughs> and her eyes start glazing over. <laughs> That's right. She can talk about horses and my eyes glazing. <laughs> but yeah, mostly I want to be a painter, but I do like to um, teach and sort of, you know, it's rewarding. It also makes me clarify in my mind these sort of half-baked thoughts that I sort of have. Yeah. And right. so I'm not caught off guard. You know, they'll ask me questions and I know I have to be kind of prepared for what they're going to say because, or what they're going to ask, because usually it's the same questions for most workshops. Yeah. And if I'm doing something, explaining what I'm doing new, it forces me to think about it beforehand, yeah. like, okay, how do I explain the you know, need to what articulate? I'm doing? It's, yeah. it's really important, and yeah. it does firm up uh, these ideas in your head, so they're not yeah. sort of half baked, wing nutty things. Yeah, it's really clarifying. I yeah. find. Do you have a you have a website, right? Yeah. yeah. And it would just be Joseph Joseph Girl dot com dot com, and yeah. they can find it, that all. Yeah, well, actually, we're in the process of uh, redoing it, so it's a little bit out of date and. We haven't put the workshop information for next year on yet, but within the next few weeks. But they will know be because yeah. I, that's something I know um, I would love to do is just sit in on one of your sessions and watch you paint and stuff like that. Yeah, so I got to do it and it was transformative. It. Yeah. So one of these days, I know we're not too far from you. <laughs> we can kidnap you or something yeah. and have like a little, hey, Joseph, you want to go out and paint? 
And it ends up like, yeah, we're going to go out and paint. And you look behind you. We're just sitting there staring at yeah. you, not painting. Stop looking at me. Yeah, yeah exactly. Stop. <laughs> Aren't you guys going to paint? You're like, yeah, yeah, we're going to paint. I could, gonna paint. I could do the tough brushes. guy. What are you looking at? Yeah, yeah exactly. I'm like, nothing. <laughs> Pretend I'm. It's like I'm cheating. It's going to be looking at you, looking at all your notes. Oh, I always do that when I go painting with my friends. Yeah, you got to look yeah, at what they're doing. You, you learn so much. So much. <laughs> well, like the underpainting white I got from Chris Blossom. You know, well, he's using it. And I said, what is that? And it's underpainting why? I said, oh, I'll try that. It's kind of cool. You have a group that you've been painting with for a long time, right? Um, uh, like Bill Davis and... Yeah, Bill and Don. And, Don Demers. Yeah, not as much lately. We've all been so busy with things. But when mm-hmm. we went to Italy, we went with Bill Davis. Um, and, you know, every now and then we get together and paint when we can. Yeah. But it's funny. Years ago, we used to all have lots of time to paint. And then it's <laughs> just like all these commitments start creeping in and your time gets eaten away and... How did you guys all meet? Oh, gosh, let's see. I met Bill at uh, the Cape Cod Museum of Art auction years ago. They had this charity auction thing, and I had seen his paintings. I didn't know anything about him, really, and we ended up sitting next to him and his wife, Judy, Patty, and myself at their table, and at the end of the night, we said, oh, they're so nice. We really like them, and (laughs) Bill said, oh, we said the same thing when we left, so we (laughs) struck up a great friendship, and then I met Don at Mystic Seaport Gallery, I know um, that one, yeah. In like 93. I just I was just there this summer. Were you? Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. But anyway, the same thing. We um, struck up a really great friendship. And, yeah. Um, yeah, we've been friends ever since. Yeah, I've never met Bill Davis, but I met Don, and yeah. he's, he's hysterical, yeah. really fun, and incredibly talented. Yeah, yeah. Bill's a really nice guy, and he's doing some amazing things with light and um, atmosphere and his, his marine paintings. Yeah. It would have been fun. I was hoping you were going to be like, I met him at a Sox game. (laughs) Go Sox! (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us and taking the time. And we really appreciate it. Yeah, we're honored. This is a good one, yeah. And I'm super honored to just, uh, I've been such a fan of your work for so long. Me too. Thanks. I mean, Likewise, guys. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. It's been great uh, seeing your stuff. And um, it's been wonderful chatting with you and yeah everyone out there in listener land yeah no i'm sure we're gonna get a lot i know uh i know um yeah hopefully we didn't interrupt too much we didn't interrupt so much this time um but i know that you're a fan favorite and um like i was saying that that sort of that reemergence of plain air painting there's so much of that now yeah so accessible yeah you know you just go out and paint and um, you're kind of at the forefront of that so i think this was will be incredibly educational for a lot of people including including us yeah (laughs) so uh again thank you so much and i'll be on the martha stewart website (laughs) (laughs) but we will be bothering you for possibly like taking a road trip to go and hang out and paint. So yeah, sure. get ready for that. It also would force me to go out there and paint too. So exactly. Like, <laughs> get me out of the studio. I don't care what he's saying. He's painting. <laughs> get your stuff. We're go. painting. <laughs> Come on. Anyway, thank you so much. Yeah. And thanks to Jay Brown who had to leave to uh, deal with the meter. And, oh, did he? Yeah. It's and thank you to Salma Gundy Club for uh, letting us record in this beautiful library Wish surrounded by pallets. Thanks guys. And thanks everyone out there in listener land. Yeah. And yeah, uh, thanks. And so, so keep the the uh, reviews, good reviews coming. Yeah, and please the On emails. ITunes. We really appreciate uh, yeah. all the positive feedback, and maybe even some of the negative feedback. Some of I like the negative feedback. Yeah, I like the negative feedback. And email uh, Joseph and say you um, you heard his uh, his uh, discussion with us because uh, at least we know people are listening. <laughs> thanks, Joseph. All right, thanks a lot. Bye, guys. Bye, bye. That was awesome. My ears are sore. Yeah.
I would love to see those paintings. I would, I would, I would, I would, I would love, love to see those. <laughs> <laughs>